Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Well, hello, hello, hello. Like I said, I'm Lana Reed, and welcome back to this week's edition of Don't Box Me In. You know, here at Don't Box Me In, one of the valuable lessons that I always hope um, that my audience takes away is that life is an evolving process. There are ups and downs. Sometimes you seem to be getting ahead only to run into a brick wall. You're supposed to get up, you fall, and you get up again. And it is in this process, your personal testimony, that you can encourage others. My guest today has lived a life that is a true example of the message here at Don't Box Me In. Tim Olson grew up in a home with dysfunction. He grew up dealing with his father's mental illness, being bullied, feeling unloved and alone, emotional abuse, and much more. His life has come full circle, and he's here today to share his story with us. I'm thanking Tim in advance for his time and give him a warm welcome to the show. Tim, welcome to Don't Box Me In. Uh, thank you, Lana, for having me on. Oh, thank you for making time for me today. So um, we were t- I was talking with you earlier before the show, but uh, you were born and raised in Fargo, North Dakota. Is that right? Yes, I still live here, believe it or not, <laughs> even with these winters. Okay. So I'm, I'm imagining, you know, me being a Los Angeles girl, I'm imagining Fargo, North Dakota is not the hustle, bustle, big city life. Um, no, we're kind of in between, you know, um, we do have uh, with our sister cities around here that are all grouped together. I suppose they'd be like suburbs almost, but, uh, about 200 or 250,000 people or something like that. So we do have a lot of the amenities and everything of like a big city, but we're still small enough that it feels like a small town. Okay. Awesome. Everybody gets to know everybody and, and grow up with everybody in that, in that kind of environment. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of cool, cool. Now let, let's start off at the beginning, and, and you know the reason why you are here with us today. Uh, your parents. Um, I, I read that your parents kind of met in a kind of unique, unusual way. How how did they they encounter each other? Well, before the days of the internet and online dating, they actually mm-hmm. met through the post office. Basically, uh, my dad lived in North Dakota here, and my uh, he had a friend that moved to Indiana, who he was corresponding with. They, she met, which would become my mom, and she ended up exchanging letters with my dad as well. So they wrote letters back and forth for quite a while before they uh, ever met. They uh, talked on the phone, I guess, a few times, and then eventually decided to meet, and my dad flew out there to meet her and her family. Hmm. Interesting. Pen pals. So they were a young couple? Um, eh, my mom's younger than my dad, so my, my dad was a little older. Um, but my mom, yeah, she was 19, I want to say, okay. when they were okay. kind of getting together. Okay, okay. So she ended up, uh, you said Indiana, so she ended up moving to uh, North Dakota? Yes, yeah, she did. She, uh, he, My dad had flown there once, and then she decided to come here to visit him, and she just never went back. Oh, wow. One of those storybook romances that we uh, read about, I guess, I guess right? So, um uh, your mother moved to uh, North Dakota, and um, I, I also read your father was in the uh, TV radio business when you were at a young age? Yeah, that was really fun and interesting. Um, he worked radio until I don't really remember him working radio because he got in the TV afterwards. But uh, we'd go down to the local TV station here, and we'd get to um, watch live tapings of shows. Back then, TV did a lot more live uh, shows so we'd get to attend those and we get to see basically what we thought were big celebrities you know the news guys and stuff like that mm-hmm. so it was a fun environment to be around as a kid okay cool and so your mom and dad they popped out you and then your sister came how soon after you did your sister come uh, she's three years younger than i am okay and it's just the two of you guys yep okay okay so uh she's the the baby sister so you had to go and protect her or you picked on her a lot growing up <laughs> Both, yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still that way to this day. So, I was going to say, have, have her tell the story, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if she'd put the the, the uh, protected part. It'd probably just be picked on part. <laughs> Man, my life with Tim was right. <laughs> cool. So um, let's see. So your dad was in broadcasting, and I think um, somewhere around, you said, 10 years old, things kind of changed for the family there. Your dad lost his job. 
yeah, he, um, I don't, whatever reason he was laid off from that. And that was really devastating to him. Um, one, because that was a career that he just loved. And <laughs> so to not be in that anymore was quite devastating. And two, providing for your family. He was the main provider. My mom worked jobs here and there. She always seemed to have some type of job part-time the full-time or whatever but he was the main breadwinner so mm-hmm. once he lost his job yeah financially we weren't ever that rich to begin with but then uh, really took a nosedive oh wow so um yeah and like you said you know I, I guess for a lot of men you know your manhood is is tied to being able to provide for your family what what did your dad do um job wise after he left the uh, uh broadcast industry he had worked um, in his younger days. He had worked security for a company before, so he quickly got a job doing that. But it wasn't uh, a full time. It wasn't you know anything that was sustaining to us. He wasn't making enough money. And at some point, I guess he decided that he could start his own security business, even though he had no experience running a business mm-hmm. or anything. And he pursued that route. So he went on and created his own security company after that. Okay. Okay. And and that's. Uh, what he stayed in until his his passing? Yeah, pretty much. Um, okay. As years went on, we had uh, he quit doing it years beforehand, but he did that pretty much for the rest of his life. Then, yes. Okay. So you had mentioned uh, earlier that you know you guys were not financially the best, but life became much harder financially after your dad lost his job. And um, I think that resulted in, you know, with times being hard and, and, and young kids being what young kids are, they can kind of be cruel or whatever. That resulted in you um, experiencing some bullying in, in school. Is, is that correct? Yeah. And as far as be kind of being bullied, I, I never really had any friends, even way back uh, kindergarten, first grade. I just didn't seem to click or I don't know why I didn't create any mm-hmm. friends. Um a story I always like to tell is I went to a Catholic school and one of the nuns bought me my own ball to play with mm. because mm. she had saw how lonely I was. But yeah, by the time you're 10, you start, uh, kids start noticing the fashion stuff. My mom liked the sew. She made us our own clothes and things like that. So there was pick, you know, you could be picked on for that. Uh, my mom would do our haircuts, <laughs> things like that. Um, and not only that, I had super bright red hair. It's grown dark over the years, but I was, <laughs> I had like orange hair, flaming hair. So that's another point to be picked on. So the being picked on really kind of started and it kept going on to where it really was a full fledged bullying. They just look, you know, come after you all the time just because you wouldn't fight back, I guess. Mm -mm -mm. But you did find some sort of, you know, safe haven. Um, I I think you ended up uh, walking into some sort of theater class or something. Yeah, one day I was sitting by myself uh, eating my lunch like I always did, and a teacher came up to me and he suggested, hey, why don't you come into the theater? And I thought, no, you know, that didn't interest me. But um, he kept approaching me and saying, you got to come out. We're doing a play. You got to come check this out. So uh, I don't know if it was because he kept bugging me and I didn't want to let him down or something. I went in there and, yeah, I found a great place in that theater Um, made a lot of friends, found something I was good at, um, began to have some pride in myself that I felt like I had a belonging somewhere. So it was a very good turning point for me. You still walked out in the hall and you still get bullied, but I had a safe place in the school of that theater and those friends that I created there. Good, good. Now, I'm curious, because this is also during the time, you know, your dad is is struggling, you know, being in, in a career that he doesn't probably want to be in and not being able to provide for the family and, and there's still some financial struggles. Um, you know, even though you're trying to find your way there and you found theater, was home life still difficult at this time or, or was it supportive and nurturing or? It was actually, it was getting worse as time went on. Um, we didn't really realize it was partly because of a mental illness, okay. but my dad's unhappiness Yes, and it was directed at me more so than my sister. Um, of course, my mom and dad fought too, but I received the brunt of things. And I think there was certain things of him seeing me kind of succeeding or doing something and enjoying life that maybe bothered him or something. Mm-hmm. But he hated the theater that I was in the theater. He wanted, you know, threatened to quit, make me quit, um, all types of things all the time. He didn't like that I was developing all these friends all of a sudden, and I would talk to him on the phone, and he couldn't stand, you know, 
me even being on the phone. So we put imposed a 10 minute time limit on the phone, things like that. We weren't allowed. I wasn't allowed to go to friends' houses. I wasn't allowed. All of a sudden now I was getting invited. Hey, you want to come out to, we had a place called Skateland. You go out there and roller mm-hmm. skate. You, can you go? Can I go? No. He just mm. wouldn't let you go and visit with these friends and go out. So I kind of was trapped in the house. So of course, then I spent more time at the theater or at the, you know, and things like that, which just created even more tension because now I'm disobeying him. I'm staying out. And yeah, it was a vicious circle. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So. So was mom in, you know, because usually mom's job role in, in the home life is kind of to be the buffer or the, you know, the, the in-between. So did mom kind of diffuse some of the, the frustration between your dad and you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, she, um, you know, when dad wasn't around, then um, we got treated better or maybe a special treat or something. You know, I mean, she tried yeah. to kind of make up for it and stuff. And yeah, she would kind of say don't fight but it wasn't she wouldn't get too in between i mean if he was gonna have his rampage and and just come and yell at me like he started to do every night um Mm -hmm. she didn't necessarily step in until one night we had a really huge blowout i was on the phone because i did not follow his instructions on the phone i i figured you're so unreasonable in everything that you know right or wrong i i stayed on the phone for hours (laughs) if i wanted to Mm-hmm. Yeah, he came, he grabbed the phone. It was I had a phone in my room. He just ripped it and threw it at me and and I got up and I I had never been so angry at anybody in my life. I'd never been in a fight. I was pretty timid. That's probably one reason I got bullied, but mm-hmm. I got up in his face and we were in each other's faces just yelling and my mom came running down the hall and she was trying to tell us to stop and stuff. I eventually pushed past both of them, ran out of the house. I punched his car, which I can't believe I didn't break my hand. <laughs> and this anger that I had, it was horrible. I had never felt this kind of anger in my life. Mm-hmm. And I went and I just walked around until he had left for work. And my mom came and found me and told me to come home. But it, the, mm-hmm. it, it really became, it was never a truly physical. I didn't get beat on or anything, but very emotional, very in your face, very confrontational all the time. Oh, wow. Now, there's another thing that kind of happens to, you know, young men during this time in life is, you know, there's usually like uh, some interesting girls coming around. So did you have, uh, you said you were developing friends. Did you have any young girlfriends during this time in your life that you were? Ye- yes. And uh, <laughs> I, I did. And that's who I happened to be talking to. Oh, at the time. Okay. Uh, I ended up, yeah, seeing a girl, I mean, junior high. Uh, now I would say that's way too young to get involved, <laughs> <laughs> especially now that I got kids that are that age. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yes, I did have a girlfriend, which of course made me feel even better that somebody actually cared about me, that I was getting the attention that I never got anywhere else. So, yeah. Okay. Now, your sister's kind of floating around during all this time. She she never experienced any of the any of the the uh, the flashback from your dad, or, or, or it was just mostly directed at you. It was mostly directed at me, but I don't want to say she was totally left out of things. She obviously was involved in a house there. There was lots of anger and the, like the fighting between my parents and, and stuff too. So she did experience a lot of that, but for whatever reason, uh, he was more directed right at me. Okay. Now I'm curious, was she like, you know, your father tried to kind of keep you in the house and, and, you know, your social life was non-existent. Was it the same that applied to her as well? Yeah, he really, um, yeah, she wasn't allowed to go anywhere. And, uh, I remember, too, I don't remember how old she was, if she was 10 or something. My mom took her out and got her ears pierced. And, oh, my goodness, that was mm. just the worst thing. And he said some things that I don't know I have permission from her to say what he <laughs> said to her. But he, he had basically called her names and, and different things that just because he did not approve of that. And, um, you know, maybe my mom shouldn't have taken him out without them discussing that first. But... Just his reaction was so over the top. And so she had some experiences with those links as well, but not just quite as much. Okay. And I'm assuming that at this particular time and maybe the year it was, um, nobody was really aware that your father was um, starting his his process or his path with mental illness. They just, everybody in the household just was, you know, that's just dad. That's just how he is. Kind of, yeah. We didn't really realize that it was um, a mental illness really in until a lot later but um it is kind of the way it was and really nobody out of our house really knew what was going on either um i guess from the outside i mean probably some of our family members knew financially we weren't doing as well but i don't think they knew the type of behavior and the 
kind of abuse type situation that was going on. Okay. Okay. Wow. Well, Tim, we're going to take a quick commercial break and when we come back. We're going to talk more about the uh, childhood years. Uh, stay with me. We'll be right back right up to this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Don't box me in. Today, uh, my guest is the author of the book, Growing Up Nobody, Mr. Tim Olson. And before the commercial break, we were talking about his early years and, uh, you know, the struggles with his father uh, losing his job and, and the beginning stages of mental illness. Now, Tim, um, your mother, after your, your father lost his job, um, I think it was around the time you were 10 years old. How long did your mother stay with him before the divorce took place? Um, it was about another five years. And during those years, you know, she kind of kept saying to us, um, as she see, would see how things were deteriorating and getting worse, that she was going to leave him at some point. And mm-hmm. so we kind of got excited about that. And, you know, after it got really bad, I finally told her, if you don't tell him, I'm going to, <laughs> because she kept yeah. telling us this, you know. And looking back, I, what a horrible situation that I, I feel horrible for feeling happy about the demise of a family. Mm-hmm. Um, because I sometimes wonder if we couldn't have found a better path that maybe things wouldn't have turned out better than how they go once a family separates. But yeah, uh, yeah it was about five more years before. Okay. I mean, and, and sometimes, you know, um, happiness comes in, in disconnections of, you know, certain, you know, things that are toxic to your life. So, you know, not everybody is, is, is meant to be there for us, with us in our journey. So, you know, for your mother, you know, um, and for, for the happiness of her children, you know, it, it was probably not, conducive to see such an uh, unhealthy relationship so um you know no it's and unfortunate. it wasn't yeah, because you know we tend to uh i mean that's what i've learned for, as far as the future goes for what relationships look like and stuff too mm-hmm. yeah know, so. yeah so she um she had been talking about leaving your father and um was there like a a pivotal moment or something that said you know this is it for her and i'm leaving today or 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 did it just gradually happen? Or was there an event that transpired that make her say, I'm gone? You know, I don't know if there was a specific event that finally happened. She just seemed to finally have gotten up the courage. And when mm-hmm. she told him, then uh, he didn't come home. And mm-hmm. we, you know, and really, really, we had no alcoholism or anything like that in our family. It's not like we thought, oh, he's out at the bar or mm-hmm. anything like that. Uh, turned out he turned himself in at a psych ward. Because he felt like he was just having such a breakdown that he went and turned himself in and wanted to get evaluated or something. And um, that's where he ended up. We went up there and saw him, which was just the oddest event for me at that age to go in and see a psych ward. And, um, you know, some people look like they belong there and some really don't. It, it's mm-hmm. really a different world. And But to see my dad when we walked into the room was really different. Uh, my dad, who was, of course, even as a kid, just seemed like he was 10 feet tall, big mm-hmm. guy, was now a quivering man who's mm-hmm. um, grinding his teeth and, and in a you know, very soft voice, voice saying, you know, can we go back home? You know, can everything be okay? And mm-hmm. it was very, a very um, scary situation. And I remember I walked up to him and just said, Dad, everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then, but while he was in there, my mom thought, let's move. Let's get out of here. Let's go. So she went and got us a place to live, and we moved out. He came home at the same time we were getting some of the last stuff out of our house, and that mm-hmm. just devastated him more. He thought he would come home to a sign on the door saying, welcome home, Dad, you know, and here we are loading up and moving out. Wow. That's interesting that um, he checked himself into um, the hospital. So... Is it safe to to assume that he he felt for some time that there was something he was struggling with, or or was that just a, a maybe like a play for attention and pity that he did at that moment when his mother when your mother said you know I'm leaving, um, or do you think he knew something was wrong with him? Yeah, I'm not really sure. You know, it mm-hmm. wouldn't surprise me that it's a play for pity, 
but at the same time, because it must have just been so devastating because it is like that changed him from that day forward. Yeah. He just seemed different. So okay. I don't know. He might. It must have been that he had such an event and in his life that it just he didn't know what to do. He just went to some place that he thought he could get some help. Okay. So when um, he gets out, like you mentioned, uh, you and your sister and your mother are moving the last boxes out of the house. Um, so originally the plan was for you and your sister to go with your mother. Um, so, but th- that didn't end up how, that wasn't how it ended up. So how is it that you became separated? You live with your, you went back to your father. Yeah, my, we did. We, we actually all moved out with my mom and I lived there for a while and it was great because she didn't care. She got a new man in her life. So mm-hmm. we got to do whatever we wanted. But this new man couldn't find a job here, so they decided to move to California. And my sister basically had no choice, but they told me I could stay or I could go. I had one year of high school left. I decided I'm not moving all the way there to try to make it for one year in high school when I finally have friends and I'm doing okay. My grades were horrible, but, I mean, I was getting by. Mm -hmm. And I, I just thought there's no way I would make it. So I stayed and I moved it back in with my dad who... Uh, this was about a three, two year, two, three year period after my mom left to when I moved back in with him. And he had deteriorated a lot. And coming back to him was very odd in now we saw the mental illness really taking hold. He had things he wrote. He counted out every single day on the calendar since my mom left. Wow. He had believed wow. that they would be getting back together um, so much, though. Our old house had been put up for sale and. Um, some people in the neighborhood bought it and they were basically flipping it. They gutted it and were doing it. He believed that our church had bought it and were remodeling it for us and that mm. they were hiding my mom in Fargo here somewhere and that once it was all together, we would all be put back into that house and it'd be good. Wow. And there was no convincing them otherwise when I would tell them that's not true. Mom's in California. Oh, oh, oh. He just he just laugh a little bit and say, oh, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. Oh, and it was very that... odd because you couldn't convince him or tell him anything differently. He truly believed these things. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he wasn't on any medication or anything because uh, I guess he just wasn't getting the attention. It was me. I'm 18 years old. I don't know anything about this. I don't know where you go for help or anything mm-hmm. like that. And, of course, he didn't think anything was wrong. Mm-mm-mm. So in the, the two or three years that uh, your mother and him had been separated, and like I said, you moved back and you realized how um, much deterioration that he was going through. Uh, was he was he working? Did he seek more medical help after that first stay at the hospital? Or, or he just was out there on his own trying to wing it and hold it together? He was kind of out there on his own trying to wing it. He uh and things were okay when I first moved back. He was pretty excited to have me in his house and ha- not be alone anymore because he really had a thing about being alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was good for a while, but things, uh, of course, didn't deteriorate pretty fast. Uh, I was just starting my senior year of high school, and um, he owed back child support and was thrown in jail. And oh. he, was, he was still working. He still had a security business. So what I would do is I'd go to school, I'd do my play stuff, and then basically the security business was you get in a car and you drive around town all night and go to the, you know, our clients places and check doors. And some places you had to go in and check alarms and this and that. I would do that while he was in jail. And then I'd be done at five in the morning or whatever it was and have to go to school again. And I did that for a week because I didn't have money to bail him out. Mm. I, I finally got enough money together to bail him out. But uh, for like a week, I did that. And then he was still un- he was so ungrateful about that kind of stuff and somehow he just it started turning again back towards me and that entire senior year was just rough and we just tried to get by as best we could okay okay so even after senior year you and your father still stayed together or did you leave him after you graduated i left actually um i did not graduate mm-hmm. uh i failed so they would not let me graduate i had to go to summer school but before i started summer school him and i had another fight he had gotten in my face and he grabbed my arm and he just twisted it enough it just hurt and i just thought you know i can't stay here i had my own job i was working 40 hours a week at i had just gotten a 
number of months beforehand. Ten cents above minimum wage. <laughs> I just went and got myself a basement apartment in this house that had been converted into apartments and moved out because I couldn't take anymore. So I basically, before while I was doing summer school, trying to graduate, I was living on my own and doing my own thing. And I actually felt good for the first time in years that I was away from all that. Okay. Okay. So here we have a, a good peak moment here. And um, I think I read even to somewhere along the way, there's a, a, a young lady that you ended up marrying somewhere along the way at this time in life. Yep. At the same point, that's when I started dating this girl that I had known for a really long time. And we actually <laughs> did not like each other. For, <laughs> she was like my best friend's sister's friend. And so the four of us would get together. And of course, it's your best friend's sister and her friend. And you just pick on each other and you don't like each other. But uh, yeah, we started dating. And um, three years later, we got married. And so in this period, my dad was um, doing his own thing. And I would check in with him every once in a while. My mom was in California. She was doing her own thing. Um, and as we were planning to get married, I remember I called and talked to my mom, said, hey, I'm going to marry this girl and everything. She was excited. She was talking about coming back to Fargo. And then several months later, we received a call on a Sunday morning, very early. It was really, really odd. And it was my stepdad. My mom had remarried and he never talked to me. Him and I did mm-hmm. not get along. And so immediately I just knew something was wrong. And he said, your mom's had a heart attack and they're working on her. I'll have to call you back when we know something. And mm. I just didn't even know what to do. That that period of time, which I can't even tell you how long it was, was just some of the worst time because I just knew it wasn't going to be good. And when he called back, it wasn't good. He had said my mom had died, that they mm. worked on her and they couldn't bring her back. And I lost it. I I can't remember much after that time because your emotions are so many at a time. My mom was 41 years old Mm-mm. and I was 21 and wow. I just I don't have a mom now and even though she had we hadn't talked a lot in the 3 years she was in California but it still was hard to believe that this is yeah. not something I even thought was a possibility. Wow, that's so sad. You know, your mother's at a place in life where she finally finds some peace and, uh, you know, an opportunity to live the second phase of her life in a wonderful place and, and, and death meets her. Um, wow. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break, Tim, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, your mother's death and what happened after that. Stay with me. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Today I'm hanging out with Tim Olson. He is the author of the book, Growing Up Nobody. And uh, Tim, before the commercial break, we were talking about the time period when your mother passed. Now, um, you had said before that your your dad was kind of delusional about you know the fact that your mother and him would reunite and become a family again. Uh, how did he take this 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 news that your mother had passed? Um, and this becomes one of the hardest moments of my life. Um, when I got the call, I had quickly planned to get to, out to California and everything, and I knew I had to go over to his place and tell him. Uh, mm-hmm. He didn't have a phone or anything, so I knew I couldn't take that way out. Uh, so I drove over there, went up to his apartment, and knocked on the door. I did not step inside, and I just said, um, Mom, and, you know, I could barely get the words out, that Mom died. And mm-hmm. I don't know, even if at that point he truly believed me. Um, mm-hmm. I told him I was going to California, that uh, I don't think he can come, because, of course, his business, he had to be here to run it and stuff. But... Um, I left there not really knowing if he thought I was trying to fool him or what he thought. And so I just had to get going. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was very difficult because I knew that that was his dream, that they would yeah. be back together again. Wow. So your sister had been living with your mother at that time, and, and you wrote that um the decision was made for her to to come back with you. So now your sister and you are back in Fargo, 
and your dad is, you know, aware of that. So does it become reality to him that your mother's gone or? I think so that he finally, I don't know. I really don't know if he totally accepted. He must have accepted because what I believe happened then um, when we came back and he was, I think, at least happy that he had my sister back and mm-hmm. somewhat your family kind of back in the same city. But his this is where he just started taking this total turn and deteriorating on every aspect of his mental health and physically and everything. He no longer cared to take care of himself. He just really didn't have a will to live if they weren't going to get back together. So even though we were back, we obviously, I guess, were not enough to live for. He mm-hmm. was totally devastated. And over the next three years, his health and everything just kept going down. And he now was now we did have him on medication. So some of the delusional thinking stopped, but he still was a very lonely man, wanted you to be with him all the time, and still very critical. Okay, okay. So um, he moved, because you mentioned before he was on his own living by himself, but at some point he did move in with you? In the last um, bit, yeah, I had um, gotten married, and then that relationship lasted. We were only married for two years. We were together five total, but married for two. We got divorced. And at that point, I found myself financially hurting and everything, Mm -hmm. too. So I said, why don't I owned a house? I said, why don't you come move in my house? And the three of us will live here. My sister and my dad and I will take care of you. And that was, I think, August, October. He came and talked to me and said that he had been to the doctor and that he has cancer. Wow. And and I just my basically my separation was the uh, July. We moved him in in like August or whatever. October, he's got cancer. So this last part of 1992 was just so much devastation to me. Um, I didn't know how to take it. I remember I really cried about it. And mm-hmm. even though this man could drive me so crazy, mm-hmm. you know, it's still your father. And turns out it was kidney cancer and it just spread really fast. Wow. Um, that, that December Christmas time, he was basically put in, you know, on the couch. He just didn't, couldn't go anywhere. He had a huge growth on his back. Uh, he had one on his face. And we had to do Christmas like any other Christmas and try to celebrate and give each other gifts. And three days later, I heard some ruckus in the house. My sister had called 911 and they took him to the hospital. And we went up there and he died that night. Mm-mm-mm. So sad, so sad. So what is the time frame in between your mother's passing and your father's passing? It was just a little over three years. So now wow. I was, I'm 24 and and no parents and my sister and I kind of just look at each other. Now what, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so now what? What what happens after that? Um, I had started dating somebody else um, even before I was divorced, <laughs> which I don't recommend. Um <laughs> And it was, I did not really intend it to, but this um, person had worked for me and we just kind of started hanging out and we were dating. Um, she got kicked out. Her family life wasn't that great either. She kind of got kicked out of her house. So I said, move in right away. <laughs> we together right away. My sister was there. We all kind of lived together for a short bit. But then my sister did move out onto her own and eventually... Um, my wife now, she's my wife now, we got married, um, and just that entire period of time, we just tried to make it. I decided to go to school. I had never gone to college because I didn't have time to do it with everything. I was taking care of my dad and stuff, so I finally decided I'm going to go to school and get my business degree and stuff. So, I mean, we just lived life just trying to get by day by day. Okay. Now... You would like to assume that without the uh, weight of your father around and and the, the abuse that you had to take from him, plus the pressure of just trying to, you know, be a caretaker for him, that life just suddenly became easier for you um, while when he was gone. Um, with the mental weight of caring for your father, did life become just automatically easier? It did relieve release. I did re- get a lot of stress lifted off of me, and in fact, you can even feel kind of guilty that you mm-hmm. almost, you know, feel good that, oh, he's gone. Oh, my goodness, I don't have to take care of that, and I don't have to deal with that and stuff. But it did that part of it. But still, now I know I've got 
well, I hadn't had, really had anything to fall back on, but you always kind of felt like you did because you, mm-hmm. you have parents, you know, you feel like you have something anyway. I Nothing. It's me now against the world forever and ever, and I've got to figure out how to make my way. I've got to do do this somehow. And so there was still a lot of stresses and financial stresses and things like that and uh, another relationship and stuff. So it still was hard, and... You just almost just did each day as they came and took it as they came and dealt with what you could on those days. Uh, there was times I remember my car died and I was walking to work in the middle of winter for weeks, you know, and things mm. like that. But you just did what you could to get by. Okay. Okay. Now, you know, with your father um, and his mental illness, you know, uh, I'm not sure if his parents were around throughout the whole process, but was there some sort of support system or, or comfort or, you know, we're, we're going to try to, to nurture you through all of this drama and chaos that your father's taking you through. I mean, were, were they around and available? They were around. Um, my grandpa actually died before my, his, his parents, mm-hmm. uh, his dad actually died before my dad died. His, his mother was still around even afterwards. Um, not a lot. They didn't mm-hmm. really, uh, you know, they were a bit older when they had him too. So we had some really uh, age differences. They didn't really understand mental illness okay. and not a lot of support there. In fact, sometimes even the opposite. I, I took him up there to their hometown for him to stay there for a couple nights and his behavior, he, he would pace and stuff so much and and he was just always so on edge that they couldn't handle it, that they told me to take him back home. And that really was, to me, very sad that their own, they couldn't take care of their own child for a couple nights. Yeah, you would figure, you know, a parent's love would uh, kind of be up and bad, good good or bad. You know, we're going to try to ride this wave. But, you know, for them to say, look, we, we don't know what to do. You take him back with you. That's kind of that's kind of sad. But, um I, you know, this whole situation, listen to this whole story, I, I just imagine, you know, young Tim walking around very angry uh, with the world about uh, just just the whole bowl that you were dished, you know. So, um, you know, your, your father being the type of man that he was and growing up in that, do you think that affected your, your relationships and, and, and your marriages? Very much so. I, I was very angry, and I really had a either with me or against me attitude. There's no gray area. So if you um, did something that uh, <laughs> didn't correlate <laughs> how I believed, I, I really thought you were just trying to hurt me, trying to get at me or something, you know, so... I just didn't have patience for anything. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't sit back and think, oh, maybe they view the world a little differently. You either viewed it the way I viewed it or, or it didn't work. So it did, especially in my my first marriage, it had mm-hmm. a huge role in that. Okay. I, I was not the nicest person. And I could get very upset and angry at sometimes the dumbest and silliest of things when I look back now that I really would believe that... I don't know, I can't even come up with an example, but maybe just because you didn't um, buy me something when you stopped off the store, I might think, what the heck, aren't you thinking about me? Yeah, okay. And very, very selfish and just very, yeah, very angry and, boy, very wrong. (laughs) But the second wife, she she stuck in there while you were growing and evolving, though. She she had to experience some of the, the young Tim. Yeah, well, she she did experience some of that. So the fact she stuck with me is wonderful. She's <laughs> she's wonderful. Um, but we also found comfort in that she came from kind of a broken home to her parents were divorced and her dad was an alcoholic. And in fact, when we first got together, and that was back in '92, uh, we saw him once, and we have not had contact with him again. And he lives in this city here, and we have never even seen him. Uh, so you know, she's dealt with not having a father around um, at all that obviously just totally up and abandoned her. And so we had a little comfort in each other in that we had some of the same dysfunctions, I guess. And so we kind of were able to relate to each other. 
Yeah, you know, and it's so important, a father's uh, presence and role, you know, it, it's, it's so important. And, and um, you know, even if they're there and it's a dysfunctional relationship like you had, you know, with your father, we, we see even with your own life, the, the lasting effects that somebody has to kind of sift through and put in order so that they can have healthy relationships and not kind of repeat the same cycles, you know, with their own children. So I, I really, you know, it would be one of my hopes that people understand that, you know, um, both parents are such a vital, vital part of a child's evolution and growth and, and how they go out into the world on their own and do their thing. Uh, Tim, we're going to take our last commercial break of the day, and we'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, 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 and welcome back. Today I get to spend some time with the author of the book, Growing Up Nobody, Mr. Tim Olson. And uh, we've been talking about uh, his life, uh, growing up with his, his father struggling with mental illness, his parents' divorce, and uh, the effects and impact that it had on his own personal life. Um, Tim, now even though um, life kind of dealt you a bad hand there, uh, at 40, when you were 40 years old, you did start to make some transitions um, that lead you to where you are today. Um, you, you you say in your book that you actually became a Christian at the age of 40. Um, how How is it that you found God? In the most craziest of ways, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I never, you know, I grew up actually going to a Catholic school. Uh, my family was Catholic. I, it was around, but... Um, I totally had turned away from it, didn't see a need for it, I guess. I, If you would ask me, I would have said, hey, God exists. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a good guy. I'm going to heaven, and that's mm-hmm. it, you know. But um, we would go to church only because we had to have our kids in Sunday school, basically. I guess we just feel like that's what you do, you know. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting there, and we thought we needed some friends, and we saw an advertisement in the bulletin for a course that looked pretty – uh basic and easy that didn't think it would take a lot of commitment and it seemed like we could go there and just maybe meet some people so we signed up for that and we went and we thought oh this isn't for us in fact we almost (laughs) didn't even go back the second night so um we went back the second night and then they divided us into these small groups which they didn't do the first night and we were like oh boy you know (laughs) but every every time we went um, somebody was saying something we needed to hear and that really pertained to us. And it was very odd. And it wasn't necessarily um, about Christ or anything like that. It was just these comments that were like, whoa, that kind of fits our situation. And they kept going on. Well, finally on one night, I uh, I had an umbilical hernia that I've lived with, that I still live with to this day. And sometimes I have to wear almost like this girdle type thing. If it really hurts, I'll put that on. But I never wear it in public. But that night Mm -hmm. it hurts so much. My wife said, well, just wear it. And I'm like, I don't want anybody to see it. (laughs) While we're sitting at the table and the one man starts telling me about his grandpa who had this umbilical hernia and how he had to wear this girdle type thing. And I just looked around and I said, this is crazy. You guys can't know this. It's the first time I wore this out in public and I'm showing everybody. I didn't want anybody to see it. Now I'm showing everybody. I said, you guys talk about something that pertains to me every single time we're here. I don't know what's going on. And um, we just believed it was the Holy Spirit talking through everybody to get my attention. And the one leader looked and said, do you want us to pray for you? Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay. And I'm not realizing she meant right then and there. So they all came around me and put hands on me and prayed for me. And it was mm-hmm. a very touching and moving moment, although that's not how I viewed it at the time. I thought everybody quit touching me and everybody uh-huh. <laughs> quit focusing <laughs> your attention on me. But uh, it did. It it really touched me and moved me. It was uh, one of the most um, caring moments I'd ever received in my entire life from anybody. And it made me start to think about things. And it was still a long process after that. I can't say I just like, oh, threw down, you know, dropped my mm-hmm. knees and, and repented or anything. But I, I I started to just take some more courses. And I read um, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. That book mm-hmm. meant a lot to me. It told taught me a lot of things. And I just started moving on from there. Yes. And so I've become a Christian. And one of the biggest factors 
that I learned out of that was forgiveness mm-hmm. and learning to forgive everybody, including myself, for my past has basically set me free. And I don't think you need to be a Christian to understand that if you can learn to forgive the people that have hurt you, done things to you, and forgive yourself for all the stupid things you've ever done, it frees up so much space in your mind and it just helps you uh, so much. I, I'm not as angry as I used to be <laughs> and, and uh, it has freed up so much space in my mind. Yes, you know, I, I don't think people uh, really understand how much weight you're carrying around, how much bitterness, how much unnecessary anger you're ca- carrying around when you're, you know, I, you know, like you said, you know, you're angry at yourself, you know, and you're not forgiving yourself, you know, oh, I made this stupid mistake, and you know, you're you're holding yourself so back from the progress and and all the wonderful things you've done, you know, and and when somebody's hurt you or caused you wrong, that person has gone on and they've lived their life, but you're sitting up here rotting in this pit of, you know, you know, anger and, and, you know, just forgive them and move on. And and it's just such a weight lifting experience. And it seems like your life can, you know, you can go on with your own life um, that you've held yourself back from when you learn to forgive people. So I think that's beautiful. So you mentioned that um, it wasn't a quick conversion. So um, about how long between the time that you had the experience of people praying for you and your hernia, did you actually uh, give your life to God? Oh, you know, I don't know that I actually have a day or anything like that. Uh-huh. It was just such a slow process. I'm, I okay. guess like a crock pot or something. It just <laughs> slow boil, simmer. yeah, for a while. So um, there's not a specific date, but as time went on, I I've always been uh, somebody who's um, likes to help people, and and so. My wife has always made fun of me. She always said, you know, a stranger would ask you to help a move and you would do it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I've just found myself doing that more and more in our church. I got involved in our church and I just got to this point. This is kind of my calling, I guess. And so it's kind of where the book came from and everything else that if I can take um, when we did a lot of Bible studies, people would come and talk to me a lot because they couldn't believe all the things I went through. And wanted me to, I don't want to say advise them, but they just found me encouraging. Yes. And so that's kind of how the book came along and my podcast now. I just want to bring encouragement to people and uh, let them know there is light at the other end of the tunnel. And it can take a long time to get there. I mean, 40 plus years for me to finally feel not like the world is against me and that I actually have a purpose uh, because I don't know that I felt like I even had a purpose before, you know, even and my only purpose was my kids and my wife, mm-hmm. um, which is a great purpose. Don't get me wrong on that. But that was it. it uh, I didn't have anything else that I felt like I was good at or could do anything. So this. Yeah, I just have done that. I've served so much now and just love being able to hopefully touch people. And I just had a man that I had given my book to come up and show me all the notes he made in my yeah. book. Oh, my goodness. I, I about cried. I'm going to almost oh. just thinking about it. It was just this last Sunday. Very awesome. touching that it had that kind of t- um, influence and that kind of that it touched somebody like that. Awesome. Now, let's talk about the book uh, quickly. Growing Up Nobody, uh, when did you decide you were going to write it? Um, it was probably a little over four years ago. Since both my parents died really young, I thought I wanted to start writing out things for my kids. Because as once I had kids, um, I found I can't ask my parents anything from the simplest things like, hey, did I have that sickness when I was a kid or this or that or, you know, or what similarities between me and my children. And so I wanted to write stuff down so they would know who I am in case I happen to kick the bucket early. Uh-huh. And, and somebody had contacted me on Facebook who kind of knew my story and said, oh, you got to write your story. you got to write as a book. And I thought, well, I'm kind of already writing this stuff. <laughs> so I decided to just totally turn it into a book. I'd never written a book before or anything. And uh, it took four years to do it because at times it was kind of painful to relive the events and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it it was an awesome thing to finally get done. Now, people can pick up an autograph copy of your book I read. So how do, how do they pick up an autograph copy? Oh, yes. They, they can get, well, they can just get it on Amazon and stuff, too. But if they'd like an autograph copy, you can go to my website, timolson.info, or um, 
for my podcast, timoshow.com. You can get to both sites from there if that one's easy to remember. But Tim Olson, that's O-L-S-O-N, dot info. And, yeah, there's a shop tab on there, and you can pick up a book there. Okay. Now, you mentioned your podcast. Now, your your radio show, um, what's it about, and, and what days does it, come, does it come on? Uh, it releases every Tuesday, and I would say it's a little bit about like your show here, where I just interview people who have had extraordinary things happen in their lives. We um, have had people that have lived with HIV, have been raped, to uh, just talking to people who are kind of experts in areas of being bullied. Um, I've even got a magician coming up. Just ah. it's, it's an interesting topic to talk to this magician who's yeah. on, on TV, actually, even. So it was kind of a cool interview. Um, so... It's kind of people all over, and I. it's all just to be kind of uplifting and um, fun and just hopefully give somebody some inspiration. Okay, and they, they connect with the show how again? Uh, the website for that is timoshow.com, and it's on iTunes, too. Tim O. Now, that's a nickname for you. How would you get the name t- Tim O? Yeah, the first name and last <laughs> initial. Um, <laughs> uh, there was a few Tims in our class, uh, like I think it was about eighth grade or so, and I don't. I had a teacher, and he actually was calling me Timio, which I hated. <laughs> it was babyish to me. But uh, then a lot of other friends started just call me Timo, Timo, Timo. So uh, it's been like nicknamed since eighth grade, and so many people call me. I go by Tim or Timo, whatever. But um, Timo show sounded good. So uh, and I wanted to work in radio forever. So I always kind of practice under the name Timo show was my little show I'd put on. I record cassettes for my friends and stuff as part of my dad that still lives on is that I have this love for radio. So we, uh, I'd practice and practice and practice. I wanted to be like the next Rick D's and do funny <laughs> skits and entertain people through my voice. So, <laughs> well, I think we're doing that. We think, I think we're traveling that path there. Well, Tim, we are at the end of our hour. I have so enjoyed listening to your story and how life has come, uh, totally 180 degrees for you. Um, I thank you for being on the show with me today. My guest has been Mr. Tim Olson, once again, author of the book Growing Up Nobody, which you can, uh, pick up on Amazon. Please visit his, his website, Tim Olson, O-L-O-L-S-O-N dot info, and you can get an autographed copy. Tim, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thank you for having me on. Can I just leave one quick quote? This is my own personal quote. Sure, dear. Okay, success is not about the money you make. It's about breaking the line of dysfunction. If you can Break, do that. Breaking the line of dysfunction. Awesome, yes. awesome. That is all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I'm your host, Lana Reed, and I'll see you all next week. 